0: When times are difficult, immerse yourself in what's timeless and classic, especially in a digital world. To immerse ourselves in histories and cultures and art and music that's been here for thousands, if not millions of years, that starts to give us a real sense of who we are in the vast scope. And it helps us move away from the daily grievances to really start thinking about what matters, art and music and the language in our souls, right? And what we want to preserve as a human society.
1: Welcome to the Book Society podcast. My guest today is Flynn Coleman. Flynn Coleman and I have known each other for about six years, and at some point we'll talk about how we met. Flynn is an author, a human rights attorney, a Harvard fellow, and she wrote a book called A Human Algorithm, which is a fantastic dive into artificial intelligence and what it means for humanity or you can just read the book, it's really good. It's got a lot about octopuses in there, which is super cool. The book that Flynn picked today is When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. And it is our first book of poetry. It is an anthology of poetry. It's pretty long. She warned me that it was long, but it was great. It's poetry, and it's poetry by Native people of the United States, Native Americans. And this is actually the second collection of Native work that we've done. The first episode that we did was about a book by M. Scott Mamaday and Tommy Orange is There There. This has become a bit of a through line in the podcast, and I was thrilled to read it. I have never read any Native American poetry, and this was fascinating and beautiful, and it made me think of a lot of things because I have some connection to the Lakota tribe in that I played in a band with a guy named Teokas in Ghost Horse, and so I learned a lot about his culture, and we would do all these cultural events, and I learned a little bit about How he thinks and how Native people think a little bit differently than Western people. And it's fascinating. And it's something that I really felt when I was reading this book and understood, I think, on a deeper level, reading this poetry. So, Flynn, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Book Lovers Unite. This is my favorite type of podcast. And I'm so honored to be here to talk about this book and all things book lovers. And I will just say also that. Per what you just said, one of my best friend's mom is Lakota, and she recently passed away. And so this is also going to be in honor of her, as it were. And then, of course, in honor of all the people we're going to be discussing through their beautiful words. So I am delighted to be here and can't wait to chat about all things this book and books and poetry in general.
1: Awesome. The first question that I usually ask people is, why did you pick this book?
0: Why did I pick this book? So lucas and you and i were going back and forth in true book nerd fashion you were like what books should we do and i was like here's a list of 13 books to start <laughs> let's think about it and as i recall this immediately jumped out to you as an anthology of poetry, something new for the podcast. And so you definitely gravitated towards this. There were a few other books that you were already covering. And so you were excited about it. And I was thrilled about it too. And also to dive into some poetry, which isn't necessarily something you see all the time when we're talking about books, but book podcasts as well. And for a lot of different reasons, it speaks to me and means a lot. We'll talk about memory and land and language. And of course, as a human rights Where my life's work revolves around these ideas of equity and justice and also language. I'm a student of many languages. Music, of course, is also a language. And so when we think about all of the reckonings that we have, are having, and will have around human rights abuses, violations, atrocity, and how we move forward to build a brighter future for the generations who will be, this is just such an important piece of work to me for so many different reasons. And it's very unique and circular and the scope is so vast. So I'm really excited to dive in. This is going to be very fun and meaningful for me as well.
1: Fantastic. So it's an anthology of poetry by Native people and it's translated into English. Most of these were written in English by people whose primary language is English. Even if they're Native people and they live on a reservation or they grew up on a reservation, it seems that a lot of these poets wrote in English. Maybe not all of them, but Several of them.
0: So like you, as a musician and a lover of books and language, ancient history, we share that in common as well. We're talking about this idea of language. And so for me, poetry is powerful for so many reasons. There's so many layers. But one of the reasons that a book of poems like this is so cool is that I leave it around so you can pick it up and read one poem, you know, three lines, or you can spend thousands of pages reading poetry. It's kind of like a living, immersive experience. And especially with an anthology like this, the design of this particular anthology is circular. So it's regional, which is something that hadn't been done in that way before in terms of how they decided to curate and collect the poems. It's done by region. Poetry is immersive. And so what I would suggest, what I do, is that it mimics life. It's imperfect it can be messy and to kind of go beyond the bounds of what you think reading is. And you don't have to understand every word on first glance. One of my favorite things to do is reread a book or rewatch a movie I love because you're always picking up new things. And I think it breaks us away from this myth that it has to have the beginning and the middle and the end, kind of like time is a human made construction. And to just loosen our grip on that a little bit and think about it more as this experience where we dive in, we might understand some things better than other. We might resonate with some things more than other. And it's a book you can pick up. You can read it all the way through. You can read a poem here or there, but I think it helps us just expand the scope of what's possible. And also language. I think language is one of the really powerful themes of the book, of my life. I know of yours as well with music. When we think about how certain written languages, for example, throughout history have always been the ones that we put on the pedestal. Whereas other more oral traditions or different ways of thinking about language have taken a back seat. When we talk about the myths of language and settler colonialism and imperialism and what that historical record says about who we are. So to really have fun with it, this book is extraordinary. The poems are laid out in different ways, there's different languages, there's different regions. So to really just enjoy it and have fun with it. When I read a book, sometimes it's not the right year for me to read it. Sometimes I pick it up and put it down. And then 10 years later, I love it. Sometimes I don't finish a book. I'm normally reading multiple books at a time. There's a great debate among book lovers about that. But I think this is one of those books that forces us to think differently about time, memory, history, ancestry, and all of that. And really just to kind of embrace even the discomfort you might feel thinking about reading and soaking things up in a new way.
1: There's a lot to unpack there. One of the things that you said was about how Native people generally use language differently and that the language is understood differently in different cultures, and especially in cultures that are not written cultures like our own. And something that Tiokasin, the person that I was in a band with, something that he said to me when we were talking was that, you know, the Lakota were never actually beaten in a war. They never lost a battle and they were only defeated when they were basically tricked into a camp and killed with machine guns, but they never lost an open battle. And Teokusson told me that that was because Lakota see time differently. What we would call four dimensions, he said, that's how every Lakota warrior sees the world. And so we could always be one step ahead of the white people who were trying to catch us because they were always thinking two-dimensionally. And that doesn't make any sense to me, but the record of their battles does bear that out. They seemed to be unbeatable, despite the heavy firepower. And when I read some of these poems, I sort of got the feeling of this circularness of time and impermanence of space and every kind of space existing at once, and that the author really felt that or was trying to communicate that to me. And it resonated with me in a way that wasn't exactly rational. I don't know. I just thought back to stuff that Tiokasen had told me that I never really understood at the time and felt like I understood it better reading some of this poetry.
0: Yes, exactly. I will say, just to step back on those themes, and this is addressed in the book as well, that we have lumped together certain groups of people. And every single tribe, every community, every group of people throughout the world is incredibly different. Yes, there's a lot of discussion here about oral traditions, but there are also written traditions. There's no one way to define any group of people, any community, anywhere. And our minds are designed and trained to put people and everything in a box. That is a survival mechanism that we have to be able to immediately identify threats, what's dangerous, what's in a dark day. Can you see the woolly mammoth coming? versus what's safe. That is how our very imperfect, messy biomechanical systems work. But the issue with that, of course, that we're seeing laid bare and that my life's work as a human rights lawyer is about is that there is so much that has helped us survive. The human brain is incredible, but it's deeply imperfect, deeply unknown, and our prejudices and our biases run so deeply. So to really expand that scope of what we think about, when we think about any one group, any one individual, right? We're allowed to all contain those multitudes. And that happens to women all the time. Of course, it's gendered and then also across many different quote unquote lines in society. And so I think making space for that and time is a perfect example. It's certainly a theme throughout this book and throughout all of our lives that it isn't linear. There were no standardized times, for example, until the Industrial Revolution when people needed to figure out the trains going across the UK. Then it was like, oh, it's time to standardize times across the UK. But before that, we didn't have that. And so when we're thinking about capitalism and modernity and globalization and what gets lost, we're having indigenous languages all across the world become extinct. So it's political, it's colonial. So protecting and preserving that culture is a deep theme throughout this book. But the whole point is that there's no one way to define anyone. And I do think that circular vibe you're getting was very intentional in this work to really deconstruct myths and our sense of time and who gets to decide, right, when, a certain thing started and stopped. So I think you really tapped into a theme of something circular, something that's beyond the scope of what our very imperfect minds have created to try to make sense out of the chaos.
1: (laughs) So you're an academic, and I think we're talking a little bit about intersectionality. This was a theory in academia that someone wrote about. Professor Crenshaw? It's exactly what you were just describing, that we're all multiple things at one time, where I'm Puerto Rican, I'm also Jewish, I'm also a composer, I'm also an Angelino who moved from New York, and I don't just fall into one group. And it's funny because when I read that for the first time, which was probably a few years ago, my first thought was, was this really something that someone had to write a paper about? Because this seems incredibly obvious just on a gut level anyone. It's amazing how in order to make something shared cultural knowledge, it has to be explained in this very sterile, specific way in order for us to be able to integrate it into our cultural discussions. Because we have a written tradition, things have to be written in a certain way for them to be part of our official discussions. Whereas everybody who ever thought about anybody they ever knew knew that no one is just black or just a woman or just a Puerto Rican. Everybody is a million things at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think that that is one layer of it, though. I'll also say when we talk about things like privilege and intersectionality, and of course, there's so much going on with the polarization, the reductionism that happens in news media as we become very entrenched, for example, of course, across the quote unquote left and right in this country right now, for example. But privilege there's layers to it. So for example, something that might, for some people feel like it's obvious or that no one person is no one thing really does need to be laid down and made a deeper part of the culture because privilege is all about how many unseen obstacles have you had to overcome? And so it's not that there's no person without problems, but I do think so much of that around identity is that righteous fight to be part of the conversation. If it's always been unspoken that you're a human being with rights, that's a certain privilege that a lot of people do not have.
1: You do a lot of work internationally. And so I'm guilty of not even taking into consideration that there are other people who don't live in the United States who do not have the same rights given to them by their government as I do. I take my rights as a U.S. citizen entirely for granted, and I believe that they apply everywhere in the world. And I know that that's not true. But in my sort of everyday thought, that's how I think. And it must be interesting to think about that all day as a human rights attorney.
0: Yeah, in other places in the world and also right here at home. And I think that so much of that around class and around those privileges goes unspoken. And so, yes, in an ideal world, we would have a universal understanding that we all contain multitudes. But the reality is that certain groups of people have been reduced, whereas others have gotten to flourish for a whole host of layered reasons. And so I think really bringing light to all the incredible diversity within different communities, for example, through this book, is important, first of all, because of the way that industries haven't given those opportunities for people to shine in all of the glorious different ways that they want to, it becomes the invisible layers and the weights that get put on the shoulders of certain people become very difficult because again, our brains are designed for that very binary categorization type thinking. And often some groups have not had that opportunity because it's not about giving voice. Everyone has a voice. It's around amplifying and creating those spaces for access and agency. So a book like this ends up being very radical, but at the same time, the traditions are ancient. It's just a matter of which languages, which histories have been uplifted versus which ones have been reduced down to the lowest common denominator. And so making space for all of that should be the most glorious, beautiful part of the ideal of America, for example. But in reality, we really have to face, I think, the most brutal aspects in order to see the most beautiful ones as well, which is so much of what my work is about. Because people ask all the time, how do you stay afloat thinking about your life as a war crimes, genocide attorney? And it's because alongside the worst of humanity, I've seen the best. And it is our job and our sacred obligation to take care of each other and to create that space and also to build a world we'll never see. I think that's a thing we're facing, too, as a community, as a country, thinking about climate change, thinking about automation, thinking about pandemics. What would it look like if we were all building things that we ourselves would never benefit from individually? So also moving to the collective. Another reason I think the book is so beautiful and profound is that it's a really collective experience. And it's a curation of so many different things all coming together through all these different voices and moving us away from the individualism that, for better or for worse, defines a lot of the culture of this country as well.
1: You are a lot more attuned to these social justice issues as someone who deals with these things all day and thinks about these things all day than I am as a person who writes music for a living, essentially. And one of the things that I've realized in doing this podcast and reading books from different cultures and taking whatever the guest recommends is... Like I said about intersectionality, these truths that to me seem like common sense, but that I never think about. And the fact that I never think about them is actually kind of criminal. The fact that I never think about them is marginalizing people that I don't know. And one of the things that I thought about when I read this was there's so many different tribes most of which I've never heard of, represented in this book. This is very obvious, but of course to say Native American is a little bit like saying Latin American. I mean, someone from Peru doesn't have that much in common with someone from Venezuela, other than a language, but they are lumped together as, oh yeah, they're from south of Mexico. And so that's one region. I'm sure that every town in Peru has its own identity and every town in Venezuela probably does as well. And that's something that this book, I think, is reclaiming a little bit For the native people, and that's something I got out of it was that, you know, there was an entire civilization here before we came here that was as multifaceted and complex and intricate as our own. Certainly history books, the way that they're taught in middle schools and high schools, are guilty of just saying, well, Europeans came and then they got rid of all the Indians. And it doesn't talk about which Europeans came here and which Indians were here and what their fates were because many of them are still here. So all of this to lead you to a question that I have wanted to ask you, which is, you've studied genocide. What is genocide? And what is the distinction between genocide and a war crime? Or is there a distinction?
0: There is a lot in what you just said. And I do think there's a lot of important discussions around language. And linguicide is also a discussion that's incredibly important to have. and. So when we're talking about something like genocide, the intentional extermination of an entire group of people, and we're talking about war crimes, crimes against humanity. And as this book addresses, erasing language and culture and reducing that and hiding and revising history are all of the ways that the vanquers and the victors cover up crimes and sanitize them through the history books. And so my life's work revolves around the idea that we're all equally and intrinsically valuable. And the Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 started to set those out in the wake of World War II. But when we're talking about, as you said, the idea that the country was founded by an erasure and a genocide of the people that were here and how that becomes retold through the history books. And so I think that in addition to talking about the beauty of poetry and language, thinking about language and cultural preservation as the way to not just tell stories through generations, but to keep alive traditions when history or those with the guns came and said, this is not a culture that we want to survive because it impedes what we're doing. And so much of what I've seen in my work around genocide, of course, involves things like criminal tribunals, international tribunals that we've heard about and seen and that I've worked at, but also this idea of truth and memory. The families I've spoken to that have lost loved ones through eras of atrocity, they wanna know what happened to their loved ones. You are seeing this right now in the news, you've probably seen the mass grave sites of indigenous children throughout North America. Not just the covering up, but what really happened and telling the truth. That right to truth is so incredibly important because that's how you face your past and you can't face your past without it. So truth is this beautiful, powerful tool for books and for literature, but also for our history as a human species to be able to tell the truth about what happened. And there is no reconciliation without that. There's truth and reconciliation. Families would need that ritual of things like burial and memory to move forward. And so I think hopefully we're in a place in society we're finally starting to reckon with that. But this is a story that we see around the world, which is that there have been governments that have wanted to erase entire cultures and civilizations. And then there needs to be that reclaiming done from that community within that community to reclaim language and history in their own way, because the idea is that we should all be able to tell our own story in our own way. So in a way, thinking about Things like social justice and human rights and just being a human being is about being the guardians for each other and taking care of each other and making that space. And I do think also that's the power of language. Certainly, as a musician, this is something that clearly has been a passion of your life. And I think it's because that's kind of the deepest essence of who we are: our language, our art, our music, how we express who we are in our way. And I think one of the interesting things about this book that I've also been writing and thinking about a lot, is the idea of language, how it opens up avenues for truth and for storytelling. And it's in our DNA as human beings, it's the most human thing we do, but it's also limited. As is discussed in this book, the idea of Native American or indigenous, it absolutely is a reduction of each individual community and tribe. And you see that all the time, that language is limited and how we use language is important. For example, in the U.S., there's often a lot of use of wartime metaphor. We're fighting cancer, the war on cancer the war on drugs. So these are the types of things that enact a very militaristic way of thinking about things. In the genocide in Rwanda against the Tutsis in 1994, one of the most powerful mediums for inciting that particular genocide was the use of the word cockroaches over the radio. You dehumanize dehumanization is at the crux of all conflict, all human rights abuses, all genocide. So it's that humanization of who we are that is, I think, the deepest essence of the good in us. And it's the dehumanization that is what becomes incredibly dangerous across conflict. And I think that's the power of books and poetry of language. Same with music, it can light us up, but at the same time, when we become reduced by others to just one word or one category, that's when we start to flatten who we are. And it's so often something that happens very insidiously because the brain wants to categorize. There is no human being without biases and prejudices. The
1: brain has to categorize. You can't process all this information. Where our work intersects is that with artificial intelligence, a computer has no reason to lump you into a group because it actually is capable of understanding you individually and me individually at the same time and squaring that circle because it doesn't have the same limitations that we have. And one of the things that I tell people is that if you had to process every bit of information in your life, you would not make it from your bed to the bathroom to brush your teeth. It's just too much. You can't look at your dog and say, wait, is that a dog or is that a wolf? And is it going to kill me? You have to make a million assumptions just walking from one room to another. But Artificial intelligence doesn't have to do that. And so while the narrative is that AI is going to lead to the Terminator, it very well could be the opposite, that artificial intelligence is able to average the well-being of humanity in such a way that makes everybody happier. It's possible.
0: Well, tapping into themes that I know you think about and that are deeply enmeshed in my book, A Human Algorithm, as well, the adult human makes an average of 35,000 unique decisions every single day. And so it's, as you just said, it's impossible to do that. So when we're thinking about offloading those tasks, And when we're thinking about just the strain of being a human being and all of those tiny decisions we make every day, we really do actually start to see a lot of things. First of all, that we're often pretty terrible at making decisions and assessing risks as human beings. So that's one of the things we see, for example, across pandemics, the things that we're afraid of versus the things more likely to happen. Also explains a lot of the, for example, lack of empathy about climate change, something happening in a very real, very slow way also talking about this idea of time and space. We are just a tiny speck of dust in a vast universe on a ball floating in the dark. And when we think about this idea of deep time or ancient time, which is why something like, I know you also love to study ancient history, is so incredibly important. I once during a very difficult time had a friend say to me, When times are difficult, immerse yourself in what's timeless and classic, especially in a digital world. To immerse ourselves in histories and cultures and art and music that's been here for thousands, if not millions of years, that starts to give us a real sense of who we are in the vast scope. And it helps us move away from the daily grievances to really start thinking about what matters, art and music and the language in our souls, right? And what we wanna preserve as a human society. Seth Godin also says something, thinking about the difference between what's urgent and what's important, right? The email pinging across your desk, it makes us feel like we have to handle that. But what about handling who we want to be as a civilization to preserve for the next generation? It's so much easier to put that off because it's terrifying. And so I do think thinking about the vast scope really can help us. I also will say, I think That's something that music does for us. It bypasses some of what goes on in our brain every day and brings us into a different place where we can think about people that have been using instruments for so many years to bring us together.
1: It certainly does that. One of the things that you said about the difference between what's urgent and what's important and in mastering music, one of the things you have to learn is that practicing every day is important and it never usually seems urgent unless there's something you've got to perform very soon. But on a daily basis, it doesn't feel like I'm making any progress. I remember when I was a kid learning guitar, it never felt like I was making any progress. And I never felt like I was really getting better, except in these brilliant, shining moments of one performance where you do something that you couldn't do before. But that's how you invest in the future as a musician, is to do these things that seem pointless every day, but that you know are important. And then in a few years, you're a much better musician. But you don't see the daily progress. The same thing with climate change, same thing with many things. That's what's important, though. And what's urgent is not making sure I have the right shirt for tomorrow's gig. What's urgent is making sure that I'm maintaining my musicianship throughout my life. And we keep dancing around this analogy of poetry and music. Poetry and music are approximations of time and approximations of truth and language is only ever really able to be an approximation of truth. And that's what makes it so beautiful and so satisfying. But that's also what makes it so dangerous. Because we can't really know anything that we're not seeing in front of us. And even as science has shown us in the last few decades, we don't even see most of what we're actually seeing. We only see a very small sliver of reality with our senses. There's no way for you and I to know, Flynn, what Hedwana was doing when she was writing down her verses as the first person to ever sign her name to a poem. There's no way for us to know really anything about her. But... We as human beings fill in this story of, well, we know she was a priest. She was in Mesopotamia. She was Naram Sin's granddaughter. So she was the granddaughter of an emperor. And these are the things that we think she might have been thinking. And it's very satisfying to paint that picture, but it's an approximation of reality. And it only will ever be an approximation.
0: First of all, I was writing about her recently as well. And I think she was in at least one of your other podcasts. She also has to come up regularly as a guest in your podcast. And I actually was recently at an exhibit about Mesopotamia and there was a beautiful plaque of one of her poems. So I was really excited to see her included there at the Getty Villa. That was beautiful to see her work there. But I will say, as you're discussing this idea of practice and of course, as a lifelong athlete and as a former competitive athlete, practice is a word that I think so encapsulates also what it means to be a human. I think that improv, for example, has a lot to teach us about all of the failings and triumphs of trying and practicing and working at things. And one of my favorite adages is this idea is that what you do and who you are really happens in a million tiny moments, mostly unseen. Various thinkers and poets have said it in different ways, but I think about that all the time. We think it's that one pivotal moment or what's on our LinkedIn bio, but who we are is really a million tiny moments of practice, of hard work or unseen kindnesses. And that's what makes up the scope and the story of our lives. It takes us away from the traditional myth of what it means to be a human going on this wild adventure that we call life and really letting go, loosening our grip on the rigidity of that helps us open doors that we maybe never even would have seen. And I also think that's what poetry does too. So one thing is reading poems out loud and reading out loud and really experiencing them. Same with music. It helps give us that more 3D immersive scope. And when we're talking about things like oral traditions and that storytelling tradition, expanding the way that we take in that information in those languages. Because as you said, they're imperfect and they're, I think you called it a rough approximation, which is really true. And there's so many ways that we express ourselves through music, through art, through poetry, through dance, through theater. And every culture has a different way of doing it but that coming together through those stories I think is written in our DNA and how we express it is important and making room for all those different types of expression is equally as important as opposed to saying this is the canon this is what's classic because as another lover of classics I was recently writing about antiquity And what gets included, right? And what gets to go on that pedestal and who even gets to have an esteemed ancient history is all part of the decisions that we make as individuals in a society every day to say whose work matters. And so I think that all of these points are really salient across what we learn, what we learn in school and who we become and thinking about a future that's making room for all of us. And to circle back to what you said about my book being about octopuses, which I love, <laughs> like, can not just be the new blurb because that's the plot twist. It's really about octopuses is that making room in the crucible of humanity for all living creatures and our environment is... The secret agenda amidst all of what I'm doing as well. to think about us as one small part of a vast ecosystem that we desperately need to protect.
1: Fantastic. So one of the things that I think that poetry actually tells us is that I think there's a distinction between thinking that everybody is equally deserving of love and compassion and that everybody is the same. Someone can be different than me and also equally deserving of love and compassion.
0: One of the things I say all the time that's really critical in this work and in life is that sameness is not the same as equal worthiness or value. One of the things that's so incredibly important as human beings that we have to do is hold these multiple ideas in our minds and wrestle with them. Sameness does not equate to worthiness or value. I say something almost exactly the same in my book when I'm talking about octopuses. Billy the octopus resided at the Seattle Aquarium. I talk about this a lot in my book and my work because it's incredibly critical. There's a reason that certain groups of people or certain species get more protections than others. Because the octopus is so different from us in their habitat, in the way they use their brains, they have a distributed approach to intelligence. Again, the farther they are from our quote unquote normal understanding of what it means to a living being, often the further we are from that empathy and understanding. Now we're getting closer and closer, and there are some examples in art and media of coming closer to understanding some of these things. But the first thing I'll say is that's what I've been talking about. The us versus them means everything that looks or speaks or acts like us is in the us category and everything else is in the them, which is why certain animals get more protections than others, for example. It depends how fiercely or violently they've been portrayed in the media, for example, a pit bull versus a really cute golden retriever puppy. The example's abound, And so there's really detaching this idea of a sameness from worthiness or value. This goes for racial inequality, gender discrimination, homophobia, transphobia. This idea that difference means otherization, means less rights, less protection, less empathy. Those are the danger points. And the other thing is not just making room in that crucible of humanity for all of that beautiful diversity, but also recognizing that we don't have to understand everything about someone or another living being to understand they deserve the same rights and protections. And I think that's also a real bias towards a certain type of intelligence and a certain, for example, Western mentality of rationalization, you don't have to understand it all to say deserving of rights, deserving of protection can feel that pain and deserves to be alive just like I do. Because I do think a lot of times and a lot of what we're seeing in media and in conversations are, I need to understand every single thing before I give you permission to exist. No, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. That curiosity is critical but you giving or me giving someone else permission to simply exist just because, okay, now I understand that's another danger point that we have. And that certain focus on only certain types of intelligence, I think can also be dangerous too.
1: I completely agree with you. And one of the amazing things about this book when the light of the world was subdued our songs came through is that it gives you an insight into a way of thinking that might not be familiar to you and it certainly gave me an insight into a way of thinking that was not familiar to me but that was beautiful and interesting and profound i have one more question that is a public service announcement are there genocides that we've never heard of and are there any genocides happening right now
0: The history of art and culture and beauty and resilience is our birthright as human beings, but so is that ancient history of bloodshed and of violence and of desecration. So absolutely that erasure intentionally of an entire group of people. There are many that have been studied and unearthed and There are many of these things that are still yet to be uncovered, especially when we're talking about, for example, as I mentioned, the mass graves that were found of indigenous children. So even though we knew about the genocide of the people that were on these lands before the Europeans came, we are learning every single day about more. There is what's been going on with the Rohingya, for example, that we've been hearing about the Uyghurs In China. And I actually just read a piece yesterday about the debate about the Rohingya. And so there is debate because, first of all, laws are human constructs that are imperfect. And there is always debate, as we saw in the 90s, about calling Srebrenica a genocide and the Rwandan genocide in 94. So there's that power that horrible desecration and the beauty of language all rolled into one. Language is so loaded. So we have ethnocide, we have ethnic cleansing, we have genocide. And how we use those words, both unofficially and official language, is incredibly contentious because genocide is, of course, what triggers those international laws and treaties and that obligation and responsibility to act. So whether or not there's a national or international obligation, responsibility to act, what I would say is as individual human beings, it's our responsibility to each other to have that obligation to keep each other safe and to care for each other. And so, yes, there are many that we haven't heard of, many, many, many that have also been studied and uncovered. And we are seeing now really what is happening. And of course, history will show and detail every moment of what humanity got right and wrong about what things were labeled. But for me, I think that the political issues about labeling and acting can, of course, get in the way of saying, no matter what is going on, people are dying and we have to act and we have to uncover this. And so for me, it's an incredibly important process without any end and also to expand the scope of understanding what we mean when we mean by erasure of communities and groups and people and how we all lose and we all become a little less human when we play any part in that. So it's incredibly complicated, but in a way it's very simple that the erasure of other human beings and groups of beings is one of the darkest parts of who we are. And that countering that with courage and resilience and the willingness to tell the truth is important, which is also the power of this book. I could read something just to honor these words by reading one of the many poems and it's letter to Nanao Sakaki. I dance with dancing cranes, lilies of the valley, transplanting them under a tree until next summer when there will be more dancers. And I just had chills reading it again because to me, it denotes many things. And this is just my limited uneducated interpretation, but you plant seeds You do what you can, you preserve culture, you honor other people, you take care of others with the hope and the future joy you will never see that one day there will be more dancers, a bigger chorus of singers to rally around that beautiful thing. And you don't know, but you do it with the hope, even though it's dark and you personally might not make it with the hope that one day there will be more dancers telling this story through dance or song or art or music.
1: That's amazing. And that's beautiful. And I do most of my work with the idea that it's going to be enjoyed by people that I'll never meet. Yeah, there is something really interesting in the intersection of our two careers and that you're really tangibly helping people that you'll never meet in this really profound way. And I'm just trying to make them smile. I'm trying to help them in such a small and seemingly meaningless way. I think it means something. I just don't know... um,
0: I think music is at the deepest part of our soul. And I think that I certainly am trying to help, but it's just about learning and making mistakes and doing the best we can with what we have in the moment. But often when I think about music, speaking of book lovers, Never Let Me Go is another book that I absolutely love and highly recommend to everyone. And without giving away too much of the beautiful plot that intertwines humanity and science fiction. And I know one of my other favorites, Octavia Butler, There's this idea of making art, and if by looking at someone's art, you can see if humans have a soul. And so it's through that music and through art that we actually are able to see the most important part of ourselves. That thing we can't necessarily design or articulate or define in any literal sense, but that music and art tells us that there's something beyond the skin and flesh and bones and even thoughts. So that's, I think, the power of music and poetry and storytelling. There's something beyond all of that individual messy imperfection that tells us that whatever our unknown purpose is, that there is something there that binds us. So I would argue that music is essential to who we are.
1: I'd say the power of your work is that one does have to be alive in order to enjoy music. So we are working together in that sense. Well, Flynn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for a brilliant conversation and for just being your normal, brilliant self.
0: And may we all strive to learn a little bit more about other people.
1: Follow the Book Society podcast on Instagram at Book Society Pod. Follow me on Instagram at Lucas You can reach me through my website, which is lucascantormusic.com. If you go to the contact us thing, that email goes straight to me. You can Google me and probably find my phone number. I encourage you to get in touch. I encourage you to be friends. The whole reason I started this podcast is to talk about interesting books with interesting people. And that doesn't just mean my guests. It means anyone who's listening to the podcast. So please reach out. Let's be friends. Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, and edited by Santiago Ramones. You can check out Santiago's podcast, Bit Depth, anywhere you get podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can probably also hear his, and I highly recommend it. I did tease at the beginning that I should say how we met. So imagine this conversation that we just had. If you were a person sitting between us in the middle seat of an airplane and imagine the conversation lasted for six hours. And that's how Flynn and I met. We met on a plane and it was pretty much like this from Los Angeles to New York. And we've been friends ever since.
0: I do love that story. I'm glad you remembered to circle back because that... Speaking of what it means to be human, that was a wonderful and wild six hours of just having a conversation with a stranger that turned into a friendship. So may we all speak more with strangers that we meet and may we all strive to learn a little bit more about other people.